This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 11th of September 2018. A podcast about a bunch of Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here is my British co-host, Dave. Indeed, indeed, and British specifically because uh, today we're talking to uh, British Telecoms or BT's Phil Radley. Those of you that have been in the uh, big data ecosystem for a while will probably have uh, seen Phil presenting at uh, one of many big data conferences, famous for presenting in a red shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit of a shout out to uh, Trekkies there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, not a positive thing, right? Because red shirts used to die. Yeah, and, and yet Phil has has succeeded and survived. Mm. He must be next generation, because next generation yeah, is command. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, people people didn't die as much. <laughs> oh yes, <they> but <laughs> it's 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 always a uh, always a pleasure chatting to Phil. He's been in this uh, you know, this ecosystem for quite some time mm-hmm. now, and BT themselves have got quite a, a mature yep. uh, deployment of uh, of Hadoop and big data, and uh, so we you know, Phil reached out to us, interested to, to talk to us, and we're more than happy to having one as a as a guest. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, unless there's anything from you, Jan. No, it was a great insight in how a huge company is doing uh, interesting things with uh, big data and Hadoop. So uh, I hope everybody enjoys it as much as we did. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so without with with no further ado, let's hand over to Phil. So we are joined today by Phil Radley from uh, from BT, Chief Data Architect. Indeed. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Dave. One of Jan and listeners. Good morning. So you've been listening to us for a little while, and you you reached out saying uh, maybe we could uh, redress some of the some of the green versus blue balance here, um, and happy to have you on. Do you want to sort of tell the audience a little bit about you and and what you've been up to? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm chief data architect for BT Group, uh, UK uh, communications provider that anybody in Europe will know. And um, I got a nice letter from our CEO a couple of years ago saying congratulations on 30 years. So I guess I'm what you could be called a staffer. <laughs> and uh, um, I've done, a, obviously, as you can imagine, a whole variety of things in that period of time. I've worked in other countries all over the world. Um, but for the last 10 years or so, I've been working uh, in IT architecture, specifically in data architecture. Um, uh, and I was that um, lead architect on our enterprise big data platform, uh, which has now been in production for about four years. So... And um, that's kind of my role in BT. And, you know, BT's journey into big data has been, you know, significantly longer than that. You know, four, four years in production means that you've been sort of, uh, the guys at BT have been tinkering it for a, a while longer than that, I'm sure. Yeah, so um, so very um, uh, lucky that I work with some, some great people in our research and de- development, as we call it, but formally it's, I think it's applied research now. Yeah. Uh, within our technology unit, so we have uh, several hundred um, researchers working in different areas. So all the things you'd expect us to work in, so transmission research and uh, now 5G and all the kind of mobile stuff. Um, but we have a couple of practices, uh, one that works specifically in, in big data and customer experience, uh, yeah. where we have a bunch of very smart PhD data scientists, and also in cyber analytics. So BT has a very significant business in, in cyber analytics, and um, we actually use the same core technology for our product, uh, Sure Cyber Platform, that global services sell, as we do for our internal uh, multi-tenant platform. So, so those guys um, started working with Hadoop, in, and I always check this, I think it was about 2007, 2008, so like an yeah. only a Couple couple of years after it was actually um, out there, uh, and they they used it basically as a tool um, to you know process large amounts of data. When in telcos we have very large volumes of data, and um, so that was kind of where it started. The journey began in, in our R and D unit. Okay, so the, initially it was it was a lot of the traditional sort of. Uh telco use cases of looking at you know, huge volumes of CDRs and, and all that sort of stuff, and, and it grew from there. Yep, 
So uh, see, there are traffic analysis, um, understanding faults, you know, trying to localize um, yeah. pick needles out of haystacks, you know, those kind of things. I think that, that the where the research teams get called in is is to tackle some of those really difficult technical questions about the network so you know that sort of time we were just um finished rolling out fiber to the cabinet and the early broadband products and so understanding you know understanding that and which obviously behave very differently to traditional analog telephony Uh, and so you know understanding uh we're actually trying to repurpose copper line test data uh to make it understand how dsl broadband works and so you know we've got now a very rich data set in that area and uh, we, we make a lot of important decisions based on that um today and so you mentioned that uh, initially it was sort of uh, it came out of the research team um you know was it a case that you, you sort of had to justify with a with a you know a concrete sort of return on investment and that side of things or was it just we think this thing would be quite cool and we think there's some value there but we're not quite sure what it's going to look like um I think it's probably nearer the latter than than the former. There wasn't um, a formal big data program, but it started pretty small. Um, And so... Um, between so and now I sit in the in the area between you know a, a number of areas so the data center people, the research people, security people, yeah. the application builders, uh, and the business people. So particularly the CIOs that face out into the business units and yeah. and and we achieved a consensus there, particularly uh, Clive Selly, who was then the uh, M- the CEO of of uh, what was then Technology Service Operations. And, and Clive supported us on in, in, in a relatively modest by enterprise IT investment into into the production cluster. So that was kind of where we went. We, we had a commitment from the research guys that, um, that they had a couple of use cases we wanted to bring on. We had a couple of others that we were shaping up. So we had a sort of you know, prospect pipeline. Um, but we didn't have a we didn't have the finance guys cut us a bit of slack at the beginning. So that's kind of helped us um, get to where we needed to be for launch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the the things, I guess, the catchphrases, I guess, I'm starting to get a little bit famous for is um, that you know, big data should either be saving you money or or making you money. So it sounds like with the sort of the, the fault prediction and the the some of the initial use cases, that was that was more about kind of saving money and the things like yeah. the, the later That's use like- cases that came along, like uh, Assure Cyber and that sort of thing, was uh, more around uh, making money. Absolutely. I think um, uh, at the time we start, we were definitely focusing on um, on those efficiency and operational issues. Um, and for, for an IT portfolio, there's always that question, well, you know, why do we need to stand up another platform with an IT? We've got thousands <laughs> of systems already. Uh, yeah. uh, and so we said, well, at large scale batch processing very at that time very low unit cost because we're sort of really pre-public cloud yeah. uh, low unit cost in terms of storage um because obviously our, our and our vendors were pitching to us big data but they were coming with a different pitch at the time that was very much the kind of uh, you know the advanced analytics kind of um, almost an extension of those appliances um and we we took a very minimum viable product type offering we said in fact to this day we still don't have hbase on the platform we took we said we're doing storage we're doing hdfs and we're gonna do uh we do just a little bit of batch compute on there so early use cases included some things like uh very simple data archives we had one around vat where they weren't due to a ta- an HMRC change in legislation. We had to keep twelve years worth of VAT calculations. Yeah, the warehouses yeah. didn't want it. You know the the, <laughs> the OLTP systems didn't want it, and we just put our hand up and said, "Yeah, give it to us. We'll take it." You know, whatever. Ten terabytes yeah, of yeah. VAT calcs, and then simple table structure, uh, simple queries on top, which we did through here. You know, and bang, you have a you have a. Um, a solution for almost, you know, in IT terms, very low cost, um, you know, low value in terms of that stuff, but enough to kind yeah. of build a place for us in the ecosystem. People yeah. say, okay, I can see where that fits in. And obviously that's evolved a lot since then, but we, we found a niche for ourselves early on in that kind of um, uh, area of storage and batch. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. 
So, I mean, how how big is the the overall sort of big data team nowadays across the the, the various different divisions that are that are consuming big data services at BT? Um, so, um, I just need to kind of clarify the context a bit. So, um, we have more of a community than a specific team. We don't have a head of big data who has yeah. a large group of people working out. It's sort of that big data program thing that a lot of, I've seen a lot of enterprises do. Um, one of the things that we did in our early journey was uh, to make the big data part of our enterprise ID. So it fitted largely speaking within the existing organizational structures. Um, so, you know, the data center team actually run the clusters. And yep. so uh, that's the Hadoop admin group. And they run a 24-7 shift operation, which means you need a certain minimum size because yeah, people have to be on leave. So, you know, you're sort of talking, um, and depending on where you define the edge of that team, is half a dozen in the core and up to sort of 12 around the edge of that uh, stuff. And those guys were, we upskilled our Linux uh, admin team. Uh, yeah. And so they, they initially had kind of Linux plus Hadoop and now, Actually, we have a set of people that are just to do now that, that focus on that stuff. So um, that's kind of that. But obviously, we have a much wider community now. We do have the internal BT Hadoop user group. Um, and that's probably of the order of 100 or so people, somewhere between 50 and 100. And, yeah, and in, yeah. in that, I would include all of the R&D people, um, uh the, the data warehouse people, the traditional BI and MIS people, have obviously embraced the platform and are primary users of the uh, of the service platform. And so they do a lot of warehouse offload and the sort of things you'd expect. And obviously they're building the future in terms of advanced analytics. So, um, so then that's not a new team, but it's an existing team that have grown and upskilled. And obviously they've also built some additional roles of things like and building predictive analytics and data wrangling and all those kind of things that are unique to the big yeah. data ecosystem. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it certainly sounds like, um, you know, business you know, internally and, and research, the two communities that are heavily consuming um, sort of the big data services. Are there any sort of customer-driven systems that are sort of um, reliant on, on the big data platform as well? Yeah, so um, we took a big step uh, this year to effectively tie the platform into some customer facing services um, nice. and talk I did at uh, Strata earlier this year in London this year was around how we're using Kafka and Spark to deliver better TV and broadband services so nice. um, it's uh, if you're familiar with the, the broadband service in the UK um, we provide customers with a, what we call a home hub, a residential gateway in the States. So it's a Wi-Fi DSL router box. Um, yep. And yep. we have several million of those, sort of four or five million, depending on how you want to identify the population, but those kind of numbers. Um, and they now uh, all report in uh, effectively a status report every two hours. Uh, into uh, a gateway uh, and that then gets picked up on a Kafka bus uh, and then we have a spark pipeline that reads those raw things uh, enriches them explodes them out into atomic metrics so that we can uh, pick out the ones that we want um, and that uh, gets flushed every minute so it's kind of micro batch yeah. uh, and then we serve we serve that data up to our call center agents so now, if you phone up with a broadband problem, um, it's a, as you can imagine, our CRM infrastructure is very complicated, but um, okay. there's a kind of middleware layer that goes off and grabs lots of data as you go through the call. So is this a billing query? It goes off and gets loads of billing data. But as soon as it thinks you're doing a, a broadband diagnostic, it zooms out and gets a bunch of stuff. And it now makes a call into, uh, into Impala on the uh, Hadoop has platform. 
uh, and retrieves all of the history about that line we have. So we don't have to ask questions like, is the light on the front steady blue, steady green, or flashing orange? You know, all those, which is enormously annoying and error prone process because most people, or a lot of people, know, broadly speaking, what's wrong with their service or something. So uh, we can do that as well as well as that. One of the very early use cases we had on was a scoring model. We now score all, I think it is. 30 million copper lines. So in the yeah. UK, this is something that OpenReach does. OpenReach have a separate uh, cluster. Uh, and they take in all of the copper line test results, score every line, blue, red, amber, green, and then they publish that data back out to all of the CPs. Uh, and we found that, uh, and it's a simple graph, uh, it plots the length of your line versus your DSL speed. And we, we then just do that into quintiles uh, and give those a number, uh, a color. And yeah. there's a very strong correlation between um, uh, that line and whether a field engineer will be able to do anything. Because, you know, if you have a fault and it turns out to be a fault in your home, then that'll be a chargeable thing and, and that waste our engineers' time and customers get annoyed. And we actually find that that's, you know, high 90s in terms of uh, accuracy, in terms of predicting whether the fault is actually in the copper line to your house yeah. or whether it's um, actually somewhere in the home or perhaps elsewhere in the network journey. So, uh, and we recompile that model every night. And all that test that all the lines are tested on a rolling cycle, typically every three days. And so, and we import the DSL data. So, all of the CPs provide their DSL data, they can opt into that. Uh, and then we, we produce this graph and we score every line. And that's uh, that's that you know, you can imagine with 30,000 field engineers doing four or five jobs a day, that you only have to save a, uh, each one of those jobs being chargeable, sort of you know, a hundred dollars or something like that. Um, yeah. You only have to save a tiny proportion of those to, to be talking some serious money in terms of savings. So, so those are the kind of use cases that, that we uh, we use on the operational efficiency side. I'm cu- kind of curious. Uh, it's a bit of an aside, but I'm curious. The you mentioned the scoring is kind of blue, red, amber, green. Uh, red, amber, and green makes make perfect sense to people. What's blue? Blue, blue is exceptional. Blue means you're very close to the laws of physics, um, uh, and and, okay. and it's, it's it's a gr- so if your line comes out blue and you're getting twenty megabit, you look at the distance. So well, look, you know, you can't actually get much more than twenty megabits because you're two and a half miles from the exchange. Yeah. Uh, whereas obviously, if you're closer, you might get a better speed. So, um, you know, bl- if it's a blue scored line, we're very and 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 the customers. So if it's blue and the customers complaining about speed we can say with very high degree of confidence that yeah. there's no point in us sending a field engineer. I'll have a cup of tea and a biscuit, wiggle some wires, you'll all feel good, but actually well, nothing will happen to your speed. And we've done, yeah. we, you know, we've, we've done thousands of test data points on that. Uh, and you can see that there's a straight, we plot the speed before the engineer and after the engineer, and it's as clear as day. If it's blue, nothing happens. Yeah. 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 No, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned um, the open reach group have got your know, separate environment I mean, how many how many different clusters um, exist at uh, at BT? So um, uh, we have, uh, you know, we talk we talk about the overall platform or PaaS service, and that is a that's yeah. a singular thing. Um, we uh, and where we'll end up, our steady state, which uh, is uh, four clusters in two sites. So we have uh, uh, OpenReach, um, and we have what's known as REST of BT. And that's a very common pattern we have. Uh, part of our agreement with our regulator is that um, OpenReach will be kept entirely separate. And uh, so all of, the, all of their infrastructure is air-gapped. And so that's why they have the – even when we transfer data, we actually have to go outside the firewall through the FTP gateway and back in again. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's completely completely separate to, from a regulatory point of view. So, uh, and funnily enough, that – uh, you know, two sites, four clusters thing is exactly the same architecture we have with our uh, mainframes, IDMS mainframes, which are, you know, 30 years old, where they were originally 27, 27 sites around the UK, and yeah. gradually they've collapsed down. So it's the same logical sharded infrastructure of 27 yeah. instances, but uh, it's two two sites and four instances. Consolidated down into uh, into a small number of individual hosts. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and that, that, that's one of the things that's uh, has sort of struck us apart as an organisation. And um, if they've had any hand in it in terms of architecture, as being keeping a very strong line that um, this is different. We will have one enterprise data platform, 
uh, and we won't have, I know some of the banks have got 20, 30, 40 different Hadoop clusters yeah. and are now in a point of time where they're scratching their heads going, oh, well, we actually we probably should just shut those four down over there. And, and it's like, you know, Hadoop clusters are not easy to run. Um, yep. And so, you, you know, you don't an upgrade uh, and you don't want to be having lots of them. So there's that kind of efficiency side of things. And also as a data architect, I'm trying to make data easier to access by particularly business users, and um, and it's easier to do that if we're all on one data fabric rather than having to move data backwards and forwards between clusters. So, you know, there's two uh, drivers for that singular data platform. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, what's the what are the sizes of these sort of clusters? What what's the in, I guess in terms of like node count and and sort of petabytes of storage? I, I can imagine that BT is is fairly up there in terms of uh, the scale at which you're operating. Um, so uh, I used to track it quite closely now, uh, but nowadays um, because. Uh, it's continually growing. I never know quite exactly what the count is on any given month, but um, uh, and we are uh, in the low hundreds. So we put that, you know, one two hundred nodes. Um, yeah. But but uh, uh, so I'd say it's um, the node count. I think if you're running enterprise to do, as a lot of people will be, will know that your bill from your your distro provider. It's based on node count, so there's a strong incentive to minimise node count. So, um, and this extends out into the cloud as well. So I know Curate at Airbnb, and um, they they use very dense Amazon nodes, D2AXLs, um, which are very expensive. Uh, and we use very dense. Um, uh, we use HPE servers, so there's uh, twenty. Four cores, uh, close to a hundred terabyte disk in each mm. server. So you know, these are beasts. These are not the commodity servers yeah. of you know you associate with who, but they fit nicely from an enterprise point of view. Yeah. Uh, and that also gives you you get a lot of locality with that as well because you you know you have a lot of cores on the PCI bus next to a, a lot of um, compute. So it's quite efficient from that point of view. And by the way that you sort of described that, I'm guessing that you know your architecture has evolved over time. You know, you, you've be, uh, given that you've been on um, production for four years. There's been sort of at yes, least a, at least a hardware refresh, one or those through that through that sort of period. So I'm guessing that that's sort of uh, that's been a, a point that you've reached over over a period of time. Yeah. So um, so when we went into production. March 14, um, we we sat down and we went spoken to the guys at Cloudera and um, uh, we studied best practice and we went, okay, right, batch map reduce, okay, match spindle to core, one-to-one uh, -one ratio because we had a mixed load and that was kind of what yeah. we aimed it for. So we designed it from the bottom up with that one. Um, and then, uh, so Doug, taking care of, I've come to know quite well. I mean, several people remember the, the webinar he gave in September 2015 where he said, um, Apache Spark will become the compute engine of the Hadoop ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, and we went, oh, Ah, so so that thing about match spindle course doesn't apply anymore. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, it was kind of scuppers your carefully architected architecture, but that's okay. So, um, so we did then. Um, that's when we went to the latest generation of very dense nodes, and we pretty much trebled the memory footprint and nearly trebled the core count. So. Um, uh, we could, you know, that's kind of put us into the streaming world, which yeah. is we're in today. And, and we, we're just on the cusp of getting ready now. And, and now Hadoop 3 will be the driver for that to look at another refresh, bringing into play um, additional high speed networking and also GPUs. Um, and nice. we have also the Intel, Intel Skylakes as well, which are coming in. So you're now starting to see four socket and eight socket servers. So you know the servers will go through another generation of getting denser again so yeah so yeah um we're working on what that will look like at the moment so you throughout the conversation you've you've mentioned cloud a number of times but it sounds like at the moment most of what you're doing is is very much on prem what's the what's the cloud strategy what are you what are you looking at for cloud 
So, um, so we'll be a hybrid environment. I think um, we see and cloud is is an important part of our overall IT architecture. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. In 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 the particular area I'm on, in terms of data and analytics, we will we will use it for a number of things. So, um, one I think we'll use it where we want to spin things up very quickly um, and perhaps scale out that kind of stuff. So we can already do that fairly quickly in terms of our on-prem stuff, but um, the second aspect also will be to give us flexibility of uh, configuration. So yeah. today, our, obviously, our on-prem stuff is very tightly changed, controlled, and highly secured. And sometimes we just want to do something a bit left field, uh, particularly in, so in the machine learning space where you know it's very difficult to know which of the frameworks to go with and kind of you know what the overall thing will look like. So it would be nice to be in the cloud where we can say to data scientists and, and citizen data scientists, okay, well, look, you, know, you just put a stack together over there. When you figure out what it should be, um, come back to us and then we'll figure out how we land that uh, on-premise to to, to, uh, to run your models, those kind of things. So, and also increasingly increasingly working with, with data outside the organization as well. So yep. um, uh, yep. we, we, we already have through our EE acquisition um, yeah. a, a data monetization or an insight service called mData um, yep. and that already works in the cloud where when you're when you're providing an advanced analytics for for a customer then a cloud is a much better place to be working in to collaborate with them so they can sideload their own data into the data that you have um, so just as kind of better place to work rather than trying to get them through all the firewalls and the perimeter stuff so yeah. it's kind of a, yeah. a mutual staging yeah. ground. Yeah, so I mean the 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 whole sort of data science exploration side of things sort of becoming very very common where people are spinning up individual environments for that sort of data exploration, initial analysis, working at does does this even make sense as a as a potential use case? And if it does, then sure that then that becomes the the initial building blocks for the journey towards production. But uh, okay, we we do have uh, in the wider IT we do have some. Uh, genuinely spiky load. So obviously now uh, BT, uh, we're a full-on uh, TV provider. We have BT Sport um, and uh, obviously Saturday afternoon and midweek we have uh, Premier, League, Premier League games. And yep. guess what? At five to three on a Saturday afternoon, we get a huge spike in authentications and sessions spinning up. And so um, we do actually already have, that. and that's a bit like, you know, more like the Netflix architecture where part of the service platform is in the cloud itself yeah, with the content yeah. delivery networks and so forth. So, we're, you know, we're already used to working in the cloud uh, as part of the overall solution architecture. So, Nice. So um, when you mentioned uh, Hadoop 3 and GPUs sort of uh, coming on board as, as a, a new piece of functionality that you'll be looking at, is that sort of... Primarily for for deep learning or something else. Um, I wouldn't say it's primarily for deep learning. I would say it's primarily for machine learning. Um, and there's a lot of value still to be had in shallow learning and the, the traditional techniques of logistic regression and um, you know even decision trees. You know, a great way to uh, to look at your data sets and what causes things to happen. Uh, and so. Um, those are the kind of that's the environment we want to get to um, to scale up, particularly uh, to get more people working with data. So, uh, you know, the the default uh, tool of choice to the business average business user is a laptop running Excel, and that's just the way the world is. <laughs> but we know. That <laughs> You know, the BI people hate it and, you know, it's not great, but it's a very, you know, it's a great little jack-of-all-trades as a tool. Uh, and what we really want to do, and people are making big decisions based on transit, you know, things like where do we invest billions of pounds in the network? You know, current problems for Scratchy on is as we roll out 5G, we're going to need way more base stations because the range of the, the base stations at higher frequencies is, is much shorter. And so, you know, where should we be putting those things, that kind of stuff, you know, or when you have the field engineer, um, and the field engineering 
planning sort of cycle. So these are big decisions that are made. And when and when people are making on samples of data in Excel, that's not great. And so uh, we've rolled out data wrangling tools where you can say, well, that's okay. You can work with a year's worth of raw data, you know, written, un- unaggregated data, and actually see what is the real trend. Because we do get seasonal trends, obviously. You know, this year is an extreme yeah. year where – uh, during the mini beast, we the UK basically stayed at home for three days, and we saw um, enormous uh, spikes of daytime usage of broadband that we'd never seen before. And we then have to then juggle capacity in the network about what customers go on which VLANs and all that kind of configuration stuff. So, um, ability to do that with full fidelity data sets is is a much better way to to run the business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any time you can make decisions based on m- more accurate, more granular data, it's got to be a better thing. Yeah. So um, you mentioned the sort of four clusters across two sites. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that that is, at least some of that story is about um, disaster recovery. What, what does, DR is obviously one of those things when it comes to big data that, that people often sort of start scratching their heads about. What's, what's, the, what's the BT approach to, to DR? Yeah, so um, I guess probably around about 2016, 15, 16, I just thought we did the refresh, we started to think about, oh, actually, now just, we're starting to get, particularly when the home hub stuff came on, yeah. um, we started to point, well, actually, this is going to become, you know, effectively mission critical. Um, and so we started looking around, and about that time, some of you might have read uh, the data infrastructure at Airbnb blog post, which is kind of how we reached out to those guys because they were a fellow Cloudera customer. And um, uh, and they have this silver gold architecture. Um, they actually have us kind of a, a primary cluster and then they kind of replicate some of the data into the second cluster. Um, we've actually taken a strategy where we've said we will – identify those loads that are mission critical uh, and kind of operational uh, and replicate those to the second site uh, and we'll run those and we're doing dual ingest uh, and you can go to either site at either time Um, and that's kind of our our basic architecture so the second site is currently being commissioned at the moment Um, we just finished the workshop to review the HLDs for the Hadoop config about a month ago yeah. And we'll be building that out over the summer. So, um, and and we talk about it in terms of um, we don't really talk about it. Uh, we talk it as second site, not DR. And conceptually, mm. we think of it as like adding a business class cabin onto an existing economy airplane. So, the only the only people that were going to the second site are the paying customers. And yeah. we've had a long journey with how the economics of the platform are paid for. But when we launched the SLA on the platform, at that point in time, we said, oh, if you want the SLA, you have to be part of a project and a program that has budget. And then we will offer you guarantee. And we use Yarn to offer minimum guaranteed cause and so forth. Uh, and so we know, and because those are existing loads, we can accurately size them and, and, and capacity manage the, the second site cluster. And so um, our expectation is actually um, the second site will become the place of interest where all of the focus of operational excellence is and that the existing site, which may be bigger, uh, will have all of the kind of ad hoc and the craziness of the data scientists and and the new users who sometimes write misformed queries or do a badly petitioned hive table or something that we need to just uh, turn the guardrails up a bit with those guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's interesting how still some some badly written queries or jobs can can occasionally have a uh, an impact uh, several orders of magnitude larger than you would uh, potentially expect. Yeah. So yeah, we, we've done a lot of work on education around that sort of stuff, and that's kind of yeah. tools tools that spot that and kind of onboarding type processes to help minimise the impacts of that. But um, it's a constant battle. Yeah, yeah, continuous education. There's uh, no substitute yes. for it. <laughs> so I mean, it sounds like big data is pretty well woven throughout. Um, a lot of things that that BT do on a on a day to day basis, you know, it, it 
it sounds like the the big data um, platform is is pretty key to many of the the standard business processes that that go on. Is is that? Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. So um, it, it is, and and but we are very clear on when we use it, when we don't use it. And one of the things that I own is the overall kind of architectural pattern book, particularly around mm. data architecture. So that covers not just big data, but also. The other stuff, whatever you want to call that, little data. I don't, don't like that term, but you know the <laughs> traditional stuff. Um, uh, important data, perhaps. I don't know. Um, uh, so, uh, and in that we have uh, a decision tree, which basically you drop your use case in at the top and it asks you things, you know, things you'd expect. Like, what's the volume, velocity, and variety of your data? What's the security constraints? Uh, have you got funding for an SLA? And, and depending on where you you're come out, you'll either say, actually, you know what, you should put this on an, in a relational database on our private yeah. on-premise cloud because that's just fine and dandy. Uh, and, and still, you know, that becomes an important part of our overall IT solution architecture. Um, some use cases will come out and say, actually, you probably should be on the big data platform and it will route you in that direction. So, yeah. um, And I don't know if anybody... Um, Actually, I, worked, I pinched the early draft of that from Alistair Anderson, who was then running a big data program at HSBC, is now yeah, at Lordy yeah. Bank. Uh, and, and Alistair was kind enough to share that with him. We refined it a lot, uh, so it includes a lot of questions about are you clear about the SLA and, and the fact that if you're not paying, you're not getting the SLA, so your run times <laughs> could vary wildly. You know, these yeah. are educational things that, you know, that we, we've included in that decision tree. Good. Yeah, it, it's another sort of common pattern that as as organisations mature on that sort of journey, that guidance to is this even a big data problem slash question um, is one that it does make sense to have some sort of rigour around to try to answer it. So uh, one of the things that uh, I think you can't happen or you can't help but a uh, um, be impacted by at the moment is obviously GDPR, and you know that given the um, the level of data that uh, you must have, what's what's some what are some of the things that uh, you're doing with uh, with sort of with regards to GDPR in the big data area? Um, so obviously, uh, the big data platform is part of our overall GDPR program. Um, mm-hmm. We've been working on GDPR for, I think, four years now. Um, it was a, an independent, freestanding program um, that you know went through the the entire estate and helped uh, us understand what data we had, where, um, and uh, importantly, built a risk model. Um, that looked at you know, what sort of data do you have, where are your users, you know, do you have all the retention policies in place. Um, and because the um, HAS platform was fairly new, we were able to add in a lot of features to help make it GDPR friendly. So, um, uh, so one of you know, as even the tenants of the Data Protection Act are things like you know, you must protect the data and keep it safe. So, uh, from day one, we've been, had uh, Kerberos enabled. Um, we, when we onboard data, uh, we include in the onboarding order forms a bunch of tagging that allows us to understand uh, what data this is, uh, where which system did it come from. Is it uh, is it real data, live data, or is it you know, dev or test data, that kind of stuff? So we do a lot of that in terms of, of making sure we understand what data we have on the platform. Um, and we've added features in over the last couple of years. Um, we added in uh, transparent encryption at rest. Uh, so that was put in. So that allows us then to, to have um, uh, more sensitive data on the platform. Um, and we have an off-board HSM, which we're integrated with. Uh, we have an HSM as a service. And uh, we have uh, key duty um, admin admin key duty separation. So the guys that manage the keys are not the Hadoop admin people. So the yeah. only person with access to the data and the key are the data owners. Uh, so we do that. Uh, and then we ran an RFP last year. Um, to, for a privacy engine. So 
Um, this is allowing us to take an arbitrary data set and uh, tokenize it, redact it, do key lookups, yep. put watermarks in it. Um, and so uh, that's now as a sort of an additional service on the platform. And um, uh, we're just in the process of rolling that at the moment. We signed uh, with Privitar, and that's uh, a relationship that's working quite nicely at the moment. So um, that's how we protect a lot of that data. Brilliant. So mentioning um, Privitar, I'm also curious as to what are the other sort of major third-party ISVs that that uh, that have been with you on this on this journey. What are the other you know, besides the um, Hadoop distribution itself? What other things have you found necessary to add to um, sort of cover the use cases or the particular requirements that you've you've built over time? Um, it's not that many. Um, mm-hmm. So if you look at the the, the tech stack, obviously um, from the bottom up, then we're now currently on the HP uh, hardware partner. Um, we have a data wrangler on the front. I mean, very early adopters with uh, Datamit. Uh, yeah. And so uh, that's been a relationship that's working quite well. We've actually, we, we, we use that to provide uh, effectively what looks like a, 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 um, a separate cluster experience for a given business unit. So uh, we have multiple instances of Datamere all connecting to the single uh, platform uh, so they can share data sets, but it looks like they're just working on their own set. So that's, um, that's the kind of data wrangling, um, self-service ETL type thing and a bit of profiling. Um, we have two uh, RFPs in the market at the moment. One's around data catalogue um, and very interested in uh, what the Atlas folks are doing there as well. Um, uh, And also looking at the next generation of ETL. So um, uh, what tools we use to coordinate jobs, particularly for machine learning um, around that kind of tool set. Because historically we've been using uh, Uzi and those kind of workflows to um, manage jobs. So we actually like to do it a bit more centrally in that scale. Nice. That's it, really. Yeah, yeah. So not a a huge kind of um, kitchen sink of of tools, but just some selected stuff here and there where there was an additional need. Yeah. Actually, um, one other would add in, and obviously uh, the the uh, the R Studio set, so R Studio yeah. Server, and actually shiny shiny server. We've got one or two very nice niche, sophisticated dashboards um, for doing particularly complex uh, data set navigation. So um, people that actually want to interact with data operationally, um, we have some stuff, some built some nice stuff around that. So. Okay, cool. So, I mean, you've you've talked a little bit about um, some of the some of the challenges and some of the growing pains through sort of uh, BT's big data journey. But are there any sort of specific things that you know either you haven't mentioned or you'd like to go into a bit more depth about that people that are coming on this journey should think about um, so they don't make the same mistakes that uh, maybe some of the early adopters uh, probably tripped over a number of times? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if I could go back and do something differently, I think we would be, um, we'd spend a bit more time with the onboarding packs, you know, that educating people. Um, when you have, when you're in a very large enterprise like, like BT, you know, 100,000 plus people, yeah. Um, you, you, you inevitably going to end up with a lot of people that have a, 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 been a group of people that are said typically the, the classic case, the canonical cases. I uh, a system owner is told right, you must land land these six tables on the big data cluster, and um, because we need it as part of this overall solution. So that brings in play, you know, ten, twenty, thirty people mix of delivery managers, designers have no idea what Hadoop is and they just think of it oh it's just a big Oracle database or um, uh, you know you tell them you've got to curl the file, files in using Kerberos and they go oh we can't possibly do that and you go yes you can it's not that hard so um, uh, <laughs> and, you know it will take us 10 minutes to set it up but you know this is just your, I think we'd spend a lot more time on this kind of education side of things and um, 
that's one of the things. I think um, uh, the data serving piece, I think, is still a bit of an unsolved thing. We're, we're currently serving um, compile off HDFS, which is we're just about on the edge of what that thing will, will deliver in terms of um, performance. Um, yeah. Whether we include another serving data layer in there, I think uh, that's quite a possibility. We're looking at some options in that space. Are you are you sort of looking at uh, Kudu or Ozone or? Well, um, yeah, definitely. We've been looking at Kudu for a long time, yeah. <laughs> um, but it hasn't yeah. it hasn't been coming. Um, so yeah, so I I speak with with Todd and and the guys at, um, at Cladia on that stuff. So the issue there is one for multi-tenancy i think they've built a great great product um yeah. but uh, in our context we, we have to actually have uh, the ability to separate the tenants and um they i think now just in 5.13 they've included the integration with impala so uh, uh century so we can do impala tables as kudu storage so that's something that we definitely would look at um but um we, we haven't benchmarked that yet so we'll be, be looking at that stuff um I, you know, I, I kind of hate um, copying, you know, replicating data sets from sort of a religious point of view. So um, yeah. I'm always trying to avoid doing that. But uh, in this case, it may be this for subsets of data for serving that. I think um, uh, that's something we may have to do. Um, and then the other thing, which I, it's not kind of a lesson, but um, I still feel that we have a big opportunity in search. Um, yeah, we we haven't. Um, we haven't really got any proper cloud air search or, you know, um, solar type use cases on the platform, but I, I've seen some situations where I think, oh, faceted search that, you know, that would fit that right down to a T. So, yeah. um, uh, uh, I'd like to try and build out some stuff around that, uh, as well as the machine learning stuff. So, um, but, uh, and you know, um, Lessons learned, Kerberos, you know, yeah, Kerberos, it's sort of hard, but it's not impossible. Um, I yeah. think the hardest thing about Kerberos is, is the extremely arcane language and terminology uh, that, you know, the Kerberos community has built for itself and because uh, it's sort of a bit of impenetrable. But once you kind of get the, the basics of what a principle is and, and what a service is and what a ticket granting ticket is, then um, touch wood, it's, it's been uh, pretty good for us and it does give us a very high degree of understanding of who's doing what to which service and from where so yeah well, um, good. It, actually the other the, it, sorry yeah no I was gonna Go say, and it's, it's really is one of the uh one of the, the pieces that you you just can't do without kerberos on a on a modern especially multi-tenant um hadoop environment it's just it's one of those mandatory pieces in my opinion the enterprise usage yeah exactly so that's good um Actually, the other tip, which actually I think people would would be interested to consider, would be um, some gateway nodes. So, um, so uh, when we stood up the platform, we did that thing. We put on I forget what it was, four or five gateway nodes, which people would log into and sort of run scoop jobs from and so forth. Um, what what we've uh, and then of course as we start to deploy uh, things like the Datamir and Actually, so what we've done in the last about 18 months ago, we stood up um, uh, an ESX virtualization cluster next to the Hadoop cluster. So, um, uh, and it's basically on the same LAN infrastructure. We we undenard uh, and we said, well, we could we could just spin up VMs on our standard private cloud, but um, we wouldn't be able to dictate where they landed because the provisioning process could have put them in a different data center. So we said, uh, why don't we just um, put up an ESX pod next to the Hadoop cluster? And so that's what we've yeah. done. Um, uh, we've we've offloaded a bunch of the non-core Hadoop services to it. So things like HTTPFS, uh, yeah. Navigator, that kind of stuff, uh, Hue, uh, is all on VMs. And that allows us then to do much better um, scale up because we can put on um, things like HA proxy on that sort of stuff. And um, you know, uh, and now when when people want to do things like Golden Gate into the cluster, we can spin up a small VM and they can have a, a VM just for that purpose. So that has been a, a very useful flex point. Uh, people want to do POCs, you know, we can spin up a VM to try out some sort of thing there. So 
quick okay. question about that. Uh, with Hadoop 3 and the Docker integration coming, are you maybe looking at moving some stuff you moved out back in? Or do you... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Docker and Yarn. So I was looking at what the Yahoo guys were doing that stuff. It does look really, really interesting. Um, uh, I'm... Be a little bit careful. I'm so I'm waiting. I will wait and see what Cloud Era's form position is on that first. I think yep. that's maybe something where we start to see some divergence in the in the distributions over what strategies they want to take with regard to things like containerization. So, um, but yeah, I, I think it's a, um, a very interesting idea. The ability to say, well, actually, some of the long run service you could just run uh, as a as a, as a Docker image and, mm-hmm. and a Yarn, I think, would be a really nice architecture. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned um, when you were talking about some of the new tech and the fact that you, I think it was Kudu, that you hadn't yet sort of done some benchmarking on some of the newer features. I'm also curious to understand, you know, if, when you're looking at the potential of you know, adding a new piece of technology into the environment, what are what are some of the things that you go, what some of the steps you go through to evaluate a new technology and, and sort of decide on its suitability to the platform? Um, so I guess, you know, are they a natural partner for our, our distribution vendor? So clearly, uh, we don't want to be, uh, doing anything that, uh, doesn't work nicely with our particular distribution. Um, then there are those that are sort of agnostic. So, so Datamere isn't, and, you know, I think Datamere is more akin to the the green elephant than the blue elephant, but that's fine because uh, they've done a nice job of their compatibility testing. Um, uh, and it's all the usual things. So you know, Kerberos support, and uh, um, do they? I guess the big one for us would be: do they understand multi-tenancy? So uh, we've had a number of vendors we talked to; they don't really get that. And it's um, the, uh, particularly the you know when we did the data policy engine, we basically had to explain to all of the RFP vendors: okay, this is what we mean when we say multi-tenancy and we actually do we said to draw diagrams of the architecture with a box labeled your product here <laughs> uh, so, okay because they didn't really get what we were trying to do so that's okay um uh there's the there's the normal things and you know all the usual things in terms of uh the support and, and price commercial model is the other one now it's, and it's a difficult world um but i think it's difficult for the startups because uh, you know how do they um how do they launch their products? Uh, do they do it on a node count? Do they do it on a volume count? Those kind of things. It's, it's a bit of a, um, a, a, it's more difficult than traditional um, kind of just core count that used to be of uh, legacy type technologies. All right, cool. So, really, it's it's do they understand? Do they understand the direction that you're moving in more than anything else? It's it's not just it's not just a a quick question of you know, does the technology work? It's about you know, does it does it fit in with your overall direction and ecosystem? Yeah, it's about um, round pegs and round holes, and and you know, is this um, does this particular technology meet a need? You know, a building block that we need in the architecture. So, you know, catalog would be a nice case in point where we've now got to a point in terms of scale where. It's okay if you're in IT and you understand all the metadata tags and where to look up system IDs and all that kind of stuff. Um, you can find the data you want, but we actually want to get out to a much larger community of, of uh, business users who have no comprehension of, of what a system identifier is and, and how to look it up. We just want them to give them you know, the classic Google-style trouble tickets, broadband, 2017, uh, be their sort of query, and then it will go off and, and come up with a nice list of what data sets we have that reply to that that query and uh, and then help them through the governance. And, and so that's a very clear you need we know what we want so what you invariably find when you run one of these exercises is um, there's a core set of functionality that all of the potential suppliers will provide and then you've got these kind of overlapping venn diagram of other stuff that's well that'd be nice to have but it's not really core and and then it comes a sort of a uh, a scoring exercise to figure out okay um you know what was the best aggregate solution great great so 
Given that you've been uh, on this big data journey for a while, what what would you recommend for someone that's sort of getting started in, in or looking to get started in the big data world? Where would you recommend they uh, they look for their inspiration? Um, well, you know, Roaring Elephant podcast, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent answer. Uh, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I do. I I, I have a, a um, some bit like big data platforms. I have an enormously diverse set of inputs. Um, you know, podcasts obviously uh, love those in terms of while I'm travelling. Um, uh, a huge amount of blogs. Uh, yeah. You know, read any. You know, uh, all of the and it, and it, what I love about big data world, which is you know, prior in my previous career. Um, I know blogs weren't thing, but you know, people just didn't seem to share their projects. But in the big data world, people yeah, seem to love to talk about what they've done and 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 share the software. And I think that's you know why I'm still still so excited to work in this space. Um, so yep, definitely blogs, and obviously uh, the number of newsletters you can you can do that. Um, obviously all the industry conferences, so um, uh, Deep Summit and and. Um, uh, uh, strata and those kind of things and there's a, there's a cambrian explosion of those things now we've got all of the uh data bricks world and all that stuff um spark summit so and all, all sorts spark of things summit it's, it's yeah and ai well, world it's, it's becoming more and more specialist just, yeah yes the more niche more niche areas isn't it so i think that's good um also then of course um the moocs um so i did their next one on python a couple of years ago so that was quite good I'm, I'm kind of an old style c pearl hacker by trade but i thought i'd just tie my uplifted lifted myself to python so um so yeah uh, we now will do all our, all our provisioning scripts are all done in python now so um, yeah nice yeah that's a, a good skill to have i think it helps because i think it's really important to to understand you know what the sort of tools that people are doing using the um using the platform um, and machine learning, of course, I think. and I'm also don't. And I would, I would say, don't get too distracted by the deep learning stuff. It is very, you know, very high profile. But um, do, do uh, the, what is the the Andering um, Stanford course, um, which takes you through the basics of, the st- of uh, all those other machine learning techniques, which you really do need to under- understand at least how they work. Um, yeah. Even if you're not a data scientist, uh, you, if you're running a platform need to understand what these loads are and what what it means to have multiple versions of a model in production and uh, the difference between training and, and serving those kind of things yeah, yeah, yeah. and data, data governance catalogs you know i think um uh, atlas uh is a, uh, i think these type of initiatives are really good to make sure that um uh um okay don't like the same words like we but to say that that group of people that are trying to build 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 data platforms in a you know with a good engineering background and and with from an ethical stance to make sure you don't end up in in the place that some of the other people have ended up in terms of uh, going oh no we didn't know that was happening with our data or perhaps you yeah. did but um, you know it's those kind of, I think uh, governance and uh, um, uh, particularly of, of machine learning models you know there's, there's parts of GDPR which talk about if you are making significant decisions on your customers um, based on machine learning model, you have to be able to explain what that stuff does. And I think that's there's a whole potential area for non-technical people, ethicists, to um, to start to look at you know well, what's this model doing, where is the bias in this model, and you know, it, and it's this very sort of grey spectrum from sort of uh, simple things in terms of making decisions to say offer somebody a you know a ten pound mobile upgrade through credit checking through to you know those more serious uh, decisions that some of the government agencies have to make and i think you know that's a an interesting uh, area of uh, a discussion very much so, so those are all fact, lots of sea of opportunity yeah in fact the the ethics around around what we do with the data in my view are almost as interesting as as you know, the, the data itself. I think there's, there's a, and it, that's becoming more and more um, front of mind with, as you say, some of the uh, challenges that that some people have had in this space of late. Yeah, I mean, even personalization, which you know is um, 
some people it's one of those kind of marmite things you know some people love yeah. personalization and some people find it creepy and and um and knowing when to do it and 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 providing frameworks where people can say no i don't you know i'm i'm an, I'm, I'm a non personalizer i'm an anonymous type person please don't track anything about yeah. me versus those people that, and there's a big generation i think as well because obviously you know, i've got three kids and uh, their attitude to, to privacy what they share online is very different to mine so yeah um, and i think yeah. you know being aware of that as a as a uh, when you're working with data is something that's increasingly important yeah and it, it is interesting that if you a lot of these services where you know you sure you can you can uh, you can decline to receive personalized uh, advertisements but you know the service that you're using is free it is advertising that is paying for that service um so you know it's you can't choose whether you want to receive the ads or not it's just a question of do you want the ads to be more relevant or interesting to you exactly or do you want to see the same yeah, old boring same. ads time and time again that don't even aren't even vaguely interesting to you anyway i mean exactly yeah the, the default ad that they serve on the page is kind of yeah, okay yeah exactly all right so um, we're sort of coming towards the the end. So, is is there anything else that you'd uh, you'd like to add, Phil, based on uh, what we've what we've covered so far? Anything else that you, well, the audience say, you think should know? Um, so, uh, um, I love uh, chatting with people um, and networking. So, uh, if you're at any of the conferences, uh, feel free to reach out or. Uh, if people are interested by anything i've said then perhaps you know get in touch with you guys on the podcast and uh, uh i can reach out to what we do one of the nice things we started to do in the last couple of years is um we do these kind of bilaterals with other enterprises i won't mention any names but you know a couple of banks um petrochemical companies where we we just get together in a room for a day or half a day and um, some you know we share what we've done with multi-tenancy, and then sometimes people tell us what they're doing with cloud and those kind of things. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, always happy. I think those are really interesting sessions where everybody learns a lot and is happy yeah. they've uh, yeah. spent that time. So happy to engage with those, and um, yeah, hopefully uh, meet some of your listeners at uh, one or two of the shows coming up. Absolutely. So there is a, a final thing that uh, we always ask our, our guests to do, and that is, uh, how would you define Hadoop to uh, someone that's never heard of it before? Uh, what a good question. So uh, uh, I, I would say it's the thing what Doug created. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't help if, <laughs> um, if you don't Doug know who? Doug. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. I've explained it to a number of people. Uh, so it's actually surprising the number of times that I get that question. It's certainly in the earlier days. It's not so much of a thing yeah. nowadays. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's that um, it's that ecosystem of technologies that allows us to to do uh, distributed systems and deal with data at scale and volume, which previously we couldn't do. And that's you know. Um, uh, one of the things that, you know, in that sort of three decades with BT, I, I, I probably spent a decade and a half of that building what we would have called big data systems. So these are the big alarm management systems that deal with thousands of alarms a second. And, and, and our technique in the early days was basically how fast could we throw data away? Uh, and filter filter out all the war filter out warnings and, and you know ignore anything except the word that, that had the word critical in it. Um, yeah. You know we invented something called uh, the original deduping where you said well um, just take you know that's the same alarm just keep account of it and you know these are things that would be anathema to us today. We said what is throwing yeah. away data? My God! Yeah. Um, and so uh, big nature is the thing that's allowed to do this. The other thing obviously about Hadoop is it, it, it radically changed the the unit cost of data processing and that's the yeah. the, the thing that people don't often know is, is that the cost per better and um, the cost per petabyte uh, has, has just fallen through the floor if you think what we can do nowadays we don't we don't bat an eyelid at a 10 or 20 terabyte use case it's just kind of a sandbox nowadays so yeah yeah which is extraordinary you know even though going back five years ago that was that would have been an enormous technical challenge yeah it's I, I truly believe that the the big data area is is one of the fastest moving, fastest evolving, if not the fastest moving, fastest evolving sort of uh, place within IT at the moment. I, just the as you say that the progress that we've made in a relatively short period of time, I think, is truly truly amazing and a, a true testament to the the wider big data community. 
so um, it's one sort of small anecdote. So when I first started doing data architecture, as I say, about you know, 2006, something like that, um, I thought it might be a quiet place to spend the last decade or so of my career because I do a bit of enterprise <laughs> data modeling, perhaps a bit of data quality. And little did I know what was just around the corner. Uh, that's really great, Phil. Um, thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you for walking us through uh, BT's big data journey and uh, you know, giving, giving the audience some, some hints and tips and things to think about along the way. It's been uh, really great catching up with you. Thanks very much, Dave and Johan. Um, it's been a, an interesting journey. It's always nice to, to look back on the journey and, so, uh, and obviously look forward in terms of what's coming. So thanks very much and um, wish everybody else the best luck on their journeys. Absolutely. And with that, thanks very much. So that is about all the time we have today. Thanks once more to Phil um, from BT for walking us through you know, BT's journey, some of his recommendations and thoughts for people that are looking to follow in the footsteps and uh, maybe make make fewer mistakes, as <laughs> is often the way people that uh, forge the path often you know, trip over the odd branch here and there. And this is all about making sure that the people that follow behind are able to have a smoother ride of things. Mm, yeah. So again, thank you, Phil, for sharing as much as you were able to do. Yeah, I've got nothing to add. It was a great time. Awesome. So with that, that is about all the time we have today. We hope you enjoyed this bite-sized big data serving with BT. <laughs> Lots of Bs there. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. But until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form, you can also follow us on Twitter using the Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.